This is, oh, this is Radio Ragnarok, and I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. No, that's, that's rubbish. Um, this is Radio Ragnarok. Hmm. This is... No, I've got to... Hang on. Oh, oh, I'm still recording this, aren't I? Oh, um... <clears throat> this is Radio Ragnarok, and I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Got a good girl in your head, a good girl. 
in your bed, don't mess with me, boy I know you'd take me back in a second But I got someone else praying And now it's not your turn I wish that I was a good girl, girl I wish that I was you know, a I really, really wish, yeah, I really, girl, really wish But I'm not No, I'm not I was raised in icy weather You can't, 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 you
They were to be placed in a set of chambers that formed a triangle around the inner workings of the device. The watchmaker felt a ball of excitement, tension, and traces of gas in its stomach. This was it. Almost. The watchmaker, Lars Gleistengruber, had spent the better part of his life, which was now approaching a length of almost eighty years, envisioning and designing this little trinket on which so much hung in the balance. He was a tall, lanky fellow, now stooped with age. His once dark hair was now completely white, except where it no longer existed on his shiny, bald crown. He kept it short because it got in the way of his work, and so did facial hair, so naturally he was clean-shaven. His sunken eyes were so dark that they seemed black, and when coupled with the deep lines and folds of skin that riddled his face, they gave the impression that he was always miles away. However, years of working with tiny tools at ridiculous magnifications had blessed him with such poor eyesight that he had to wear a pair of spectacles so thick that he looked, for all the world, like a bad-tempered, eighty-year-old Powerpuff girl. The green one. He placed the diamonds in their respective chambers and sealed them. There was one thing left to do. He rummaged around in the drawers under his workbench until he found what he was looking for. He picked the device up gently and slowly clipped it into its casing. Finally, he screwed the back cover into place before placing the little object on the workbench where he stared at it, exhausted and satisfied, for some time. He stood up and went to the liquor cabinet that stood in the corner near the back of his office. He pulled out a crystal tumbler and a bottle of Johnny Blue and proceeded to pour himself a double. After a swig, or two, well, three for good measure, he walked over to the antique phone that was mounted on his wall. He dialed slowly, even by the standards of those annoying telephones that one dials by rotating a disc with holes to slot one's fingers in. He could handle quantum mechanics no problem, but too many buttons just confused him. He waited a moment or two before the man on the other end of the receiver picked up. Hello, George, said Lars. His voice was curt, but it had a gravelly character that hinted at years behind a cigarette. Lars, responded a soft, tired voice from the other end. What in blue blazes are you doing ringing me up at this godforsaken hour? Are you deranged? George, said Lars urgently. You must come quick. I've done it. Done what? asked George. He sounded worried. Something amazing, trembled Lars. He could barely contain his excitement. Oh, no, said George. What is it this time? Is Jill okay? Jill was Lars's wife, and she was perfectly fine, although she hadn't been speaking to Lars for the past week. Granted, Lars hadn't spoken to her in almost two weeks, not since he discovered how to make the resonators actually do what they were supposed to do. Since then, he had holed himself up in his office, working tirelessly up to this point. This crucial point. Nothing would be the same from today. Lars was sure of that. Jill's fine, said Lars. Just get here as fast as you can. You have to see it. George's mind was racing as the taxi drove him to the jeweler on the corner of 51st and 7th, where Lars worked as a watchmaker and repairman. He was worried that Lars had finally overestimated the curious balance of stupidity, ingenuity, and downright luck that had saved his neck more times than George could remember. Even when he and Lars had served together in the war sixty years before, he noticed that Lars would often rush into a fray head first without a helmet, and yet emerge somehow alive to tell the tale. 
and get the medal. George wasn't like that. He was a short, jumpy man with a face and demeanor that likened itself to a squirrel when he was in a good mood and a rat when he wasn't. He was three years younger than Lars, but found that he always felt older. He said that Lars was childish. Lars said that he was anal retentive. After the war, George was glad to see Lars settle down with Jill, even if being a watchmaker was an odd choice of profession for him. But, to George's horror, Lars developed a fascination with quantum physics and began to fancy himself an inventor. On one occasion, Lars had built a contraption which he claimed was a working quantum computer. It looked like a small cube about the size of a die, which glowed electric blue and hovered in the center of a large metal ring which was connected to the wall socket and to a large screen. The computer worked, at first. It seemed to intuitively understand all that Lars was telling it verbally to do. But in true Lars fashion, he hadn't quite thought the darn contraption through. The method he was using to stabilize each qubit in its various states quickly overloaded the power source, blacking out everything in a five-block radius. When the power failed, so did the stabilizing mechanism, causing an explosion that somehow managed to destroy every piece of glass and electronic equipment in the building, but left Lars and George unscathed. Jill almost divorced him after that, and so Lars stopped working on anything for almost 20 years, or so George thought. Evidently not, thought George, or he wouldn't be on his way to Lars's office at 20 past 4 in the morning. The cab stopped. George tumbled out of the car and into the shop. What is it, Lars? he panted. What, what have you done? Have a whiskey, said Lars, offering him a glass. You... You brought me here at five in the damn morning for whiskey? You've gone senile, my old friend. No doubt. Don't be ridiculous, George, laughed Lars. I haven't gone senile. The Viagra works just fine. Senile, not sterile, you asshole, growled George. He hadn't gotten over his morning grumpiness enough to find Lars funny. What do you want me to say? Whiskey first, old boy, said Lars, and then we can play. George grumbled all the way through the first sip, and then, upon realizing exactly what whiskey it was, he fell silent and stared at his old friend. Good, huh? smiled Lars. Yes, said George, looking at his glass. But you've either done something really amazing or really stupid to open this up. Hopefully the former but probably the latter. Maybe both. What is it, Lars? What have you done? If it's another damn computer, I'll smash it with my bare hands before I let you turn it on, you hear? Lars simply laughed. <laughs> Follow me. Lars led George into the back office where he worked and pointed to a small silver pocket watch lying on the workbench. It seemed for all the world to be perfectly ordinary save for two differences. First, instead of a single adjustment dial, it had two. Second, the face consisted of four separate clock faces, a large one with slender Victorian hands which simply told the time, and three smaller ones like the kind you find on sports watches. It was certainly more elegant than Lars's other contraptions, thought George, but he still didn't trust the thing. 
Knowing Lars, this thing could probably do more damage than Fat Man or Little Boy could dream of. There it is, said Lars. My magnificent octopus. Your what? My magnum opus, said Lars. My life's work. Drink, Johnny, why don't you? He can make you laugh any time. And what is it? asked George, taking a sip. I call it a wobbler. What? A wobbler. And what does it do? Well, sighed Lars. It, uh, well, it, um, wobbles. George was incredulous. Viagra or not, this man had fallen off his rocking chair somewhere over the Mariana Trench. You're serious? Well, at the most basic level, said Lars, that's all it does. You're no fun in the morning, you know. I spent all night thinking of those jokes. It's actually a spatio-temporal resonator. I call it the Silver Star for short. And what does it do? Well, I'm not quite sure. Meaning? George felt a shiver of apprehension. Lars was doing what he did best, breaking the laws of nature and forgetting the one law that mattered, Murphy's. Lars always said that Murphy was an idiot dipstick who was mad at the world because he never got a date. Murphy didn't like that, so there was a mutual hatred between the law and the man. It's calibrated to detect and vibrate at the resonant frequency of the space-time continuum, creating a localized disturbance of constructive interference. Disturb the space-time continuum, said George. Are you mad? It's only a localized disturbance, argued Lars, in theory. And what would it achieve, hmm? Well, I'm not sure about that either. Theoretically, if the frequencies are altered correctly, one could move through either space or time without disturbing the other. So, it's a teleporter and a time machine, surmised George. No, yes, maybe, I don't know actually, said Lars. All it really does is vibrate at very specific, constantly changing frequencies. If they change all the time, how do you match them? That's the tricky part, said Lars. Because the continuum is tangible, it has resonant frequencies, but it has no mass. Why? Good question, I'm glad you asked. Simply put, the resonant frequencies of empty space are wherever the resonant frequencies of matter are not. By matter, I mean matter and antimatter, just so we're clear. The look on George's face signaled that clarity was a long-forgotten concept at this point. Lars continued, oblivious to his old friend's quandary. Time poses a greater challenge, though, since we only really know what it is because we experience it as a constant progression from one state to the other, usually as decay which is brought about by the transfer of energy. Therefore, the presence and transfer of energy indicates the flow of time, and the total absence of energy shows us where we can find the resonant frequencies of time. George caught himself drooling slightly. Lars made a mental note of this, but chose to press on. If we cross-reference these two sets of frequencies, we find the nodal points of the space-time continuum, which are infinite in a universe as vast as ours. 
The frequencies found at these nodal points are the base frequencies of the space-time continuum. Lars took a sip of whiskey and a breath and then carried on talking. In the star, there are seven quantum string resonators. What they do is cycle through multiple states of quanta at a specific frequency until they match a base frequency for a nanosecond, in which time they ping it, raising a single crest or lowering a single trough and causing a tiny disturbance. Then the QSR cycles backward at a new frequency until the same thing happens again. The QSR ping-pongs through the frequencies and each disturbance brings the spectrum closer together until a single frequency is reached. When that happens, the space-time continuum at that specific point in space and time becomes rigid instead of being in flux, and a disparate anomaly is created in which the resonant frequency of the continuum begins to follow the QSR as opposed to the other way around. The star contains seven QSRs, and when each of the seven reaches a single frequency, the device and the area around it is removed from the natural flux of the space-time continuum and is able to move through it, free of its constraints, simply by altering the frequencies of the QSRs. Lars finished his whiskey in a single gulp. George followed suit, almost, it seemed, unaware of what he was doing. Lars promptly poured them each another of the old two-fingered salute. That's the theory, at least, he said as he poured. Does it make sense? Gosh, I feel like a scientist. And what happens then? asked George, absent-mindedly taking the tumbler Lars held out to him. He wasn't sure he liked the idea of fiddling with the fabric of the universe. She was a fragile lady, and would certainly not like her prized dress being altered without her consent. I'm not sure about that said Lars thoughtfully. The disturbance could have a ripple effect and uh, unwrap the universe, or the device and the area around it could cease to exist altogether, or, very possibly, nothing could happen at all. That's the exciting bit. Exciting is not the way I would put it. Of course, the star could do exactly what I wanted to, and the world would change forever. I think the world would change regardless. How long do the, the string thingies take to finish their uh, ping-pong thing? Oh, anywhere from a millisecond to an epoch, said Lars. I have no way to be sure. And what's to say the thing doesn't get lost in time or something, land up on some caveman's doorstep and change the world as we know it? It might, <laughs> laughed Lars. But I put it into a clock for a reason. You see, the mechanical ticking serves as a reference point, keeping it attached to a singular forward-backward motion of time. Hopefully. Toss it, said George. There's far too much that could go wrong. Not on your life, laughed Lars. I've worked for years on this thing, and today is the day I'll test it. And with that, he put his whiskey down and picked the pocket watch up. He popped the two dials up and began adjusting them. When he had finished, he clicked the dials back and put it back on the workbench. The two of them watched closely. George with the nervous energy of a man standing in front of a hungry bear, and Lars with the anticipation of a child at a magic show. After a few seconds, the watch glowed bright blue for a moment, and then returned to its original state. 
Lars's eyes widened. The frequencies have become fixed. They watched it for five more minutes. Nothing happened. Oh, come on! shouted Lars, throwing a glass full of top-notch whiskey at the watch. The tumbler somehow managed to fly through the watch and into the table before shooting out back at Lars. Thankfully, the tumbler's aim was slightly off and it promptly exploded against the wall behind the two thoroughly surprised men. What the hell? breathed George. The universe wasn't happy. He knew it. I think, said Lars after a moment, that it's vibrating through space-time. The workbench is vibrating too. Hmm. I gave it no direction to move in, so it's simply maintaining the disturbance. It's everywhere, nowhere, and somewhere, all the time. Hmm. The only thing keeping it here is the ticking of the watch. Look! He took a silver pen and held it over the workbench before dropping it. The pen fell into the workbench and promptly flew out straight into the ceiling, somehow driving the point far enough in to hold it there. George let out a little yelp. Lars laughed. Curious, he said. It seems that it's alternating between here and wherever else it is. Trillions of times a second. Ha! Uh, how do you stop it from doing that, said George? You can't touch it without flying off. I, uh, well, I hadn't actually thought of that. You hadn't thought of that, yelled George. You created a machine that could be unwrapping the universe as we speak, and you hadn't thought of how to turn it off? Whoa, 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 George. Take it easy, huh? I can turn it off if I can reach it, okay? I just don't know how to do that. And in case you haven't noticed, the universe is perfectly fine right now. Well, I'm not, said George, still agitated. Find a way to reach it, and fast. Okay, okay, relented Lars. Just give me a moment to think. Lars stood staring at the watch for some time, while George began to pace the room nervously, shooting glances at Lars and the small silver trinket that was on the verge of giving him another stroke. I might just have it, said Lars eventually. What? Well, we can't touch it because of the vibrations, answered Lars, but the workbench is vibrating with it. So? So? The workbench picked up the vibrations from it. Now if it can do that, then so can I. How, Lars? Hmm? How do you plan to pick up the vibrations? Like this, said Lars, slowly reaching over to the watch. He held his hand barely a millimeter over the watch for a while until he closed his fingers around its smooth silver surface and picked it up. There we are, he said, as if it had been the easiest exercise in the world. Well, said George, switch it off. Lars laughed. There was a glint in his eye that George hadn't seen in years. Not yet, said Lars. Let's see if we can move around, shall we? Lars turned one of the dials and promptly disappeared. Lars, screamed George. He looked around the office wildly. What was he going to tell Jill? That he had let her idiot of a husband wipe himself off the face of the earth? To hell with that. In here, George, called Lars from the store's lobby. It works fine, perfectly fine. 
Jesus, Lars, said a relieved George as he entered the store lobby. You nearly killed me. Well, then this should put you over the edge, laughed Lars. It's time to move through time. No, Lars, don't, shouted George, but it was too late. Lars had again adjusted the dials. I think, he said, smiling, sometime in April 1956, around my second birthday. I've always wished I could watch Elvis live and in his prime. I'll be back for breakfast, I promise. You're a fool, Lars, said George. A genius, but a fool. Lars clicked the dials down. The hands of the watch began to spin backwards. George watched in horror as the clothes that Lars was wearing turned into tufts of cotton and blobs of very strange grey goo before disappearing altogether. His shoes and belt became pieces of cowhide before they too vanished. Lars himself grew younger before George's eyes until a small two-year-old infant sat where he once stood, staring up at George. The watch, too, was victim to this reversal of the natural order. Beside the baby lay a small pile of rocks and sand and three microscopic diamonds. Well, Lars, said George to the baby, would you mind telling me how I am ever going to explain this to your wife? Druids. Now. Priests and ministers of an ancient Celtic religion which did not disdain to employ the humble allurement of human sacrifice. Very little is now known about the Druids and their faith. Pliny says their religion, originating in Britain, spread eastward as far as Persia. Caesar says those who desired to study its mysteries went to Britain. Caesar himself went to Britain, but does not appear to have obtained any high preferment in the Druidical Church, although his talent for human sacrifice was considerable. Druids performed their religious rites in groves, and knew nothing of church mortgages and the season ticket systems of pew rents. They were, in short, heathens, and, as they were once complacently catalogued by a distinguished prelate of the Church of England, dissenters. So, one of the things that I've been doing um, at the COS outpost in my spare time whenever there's no one around, which is most of the time, um, is I've been uh, trying to, trying to, you know, uh, get it open, really. Um, we're, it's a big building that we've got here, and there's lots of space, but unfortunately most of it's locked up, and um, I've been trying to find a way to... to, to plumb the depths of the building if if i can use so poetic a phrase um i've been trying to you know have a look and and see if i can find out what what else is in this building i mean there's lots of interesting stuff just in the in the sections that we have access to anyway to get to the story of today um i was uh i was cleaning out uh near the basement level um of the of, of this this section of the building and uh there's there's one door uh B27 which uh has uh, has always been a little bit loose it's been locked but it's it's been fairly loose and i finally managed to to get you know just get that last little push um and get it open and uh it opened out into um a locker room uh and uh and 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 a uh it looks like some sort of 
operational environment. I mean, there's lots of, uh, you know, old technology. It doesn't work because we don't have the power for it. Um, lots of interesting stuff, a uh, lot of screens, a lot of uh, keyboardy type of things. But one of the most interesting things is, is um, uh, uh, it turns out there was, um, well, there was, there was a jerry there. Um, and if you don't know what a jerry is, it was a corpse. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm sounding really bright about a corpse, but that's because he's probably been dead for about 70, 80 years. So, you know, it's not like I should feel sad for someone who's already, you know, up in La La Land with all the all the singing things and, and uh, afterlife. I, I don't know. Yeah, so there was a corpse and its name was Jerry. And I know its name was Jerry because it had a label um, on, on its jacket. And... Um, Anyway, uh, Jerry, uh, he had a bunch of cool things on him, and uh, I think I might go through those cool things at some point. Not today, because the most important thing that I've found on Jerry is in Jerry's hands, uh, there happened to be a set of keys. Um, so I've got the keys to the building now, which means it's time to start exploring. Silence en tout suscitant 
Dullard, noun, a member of the reigning dynasty in letters and life. The Dullards came in with Adam, and being both numerous and sturdy, have overrun the habitable world. The secret of their power is their insensibility to blows. Tickle them with a bludgeon, and they laugh with a platitude. The Dullards came originally from Boeotia, whence they were driven by stress of starvation, their dullness having blighted the crops. For some centuries they infested Philistia, and many of them are called Philistines to this day. In the turbulent times of the Crusades, they withdrew thence and gradually overspread all Europe, occupying most of the high places in politics, art, literature, science, and theology. Since a detachment of Dullards came over with the pilgrims in the Mayflower and made a favorable report of the country, their increase by birth, immigration, and conversion has been rapid and steady. According to the most trustworthy statistics, the number of adult dullards in the United States is but little short of 30 millions, including the statisticians. The intellectual center of the race is somewhere about Peoria, Illinois, but the New England dullard is the most shockingly moral. <laughs> This episode of Radio Ragnarok featured The Watchmaker by Your Nomad Soul, read by the author, with the songs Good Girl by Melanie Kerr and Une Alchimie Secreti by Lesasso. There were also excerpts from The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Beers, read by Your Nomad Soul. All content in this podcast is in the public domain with the exception of Une Alchimie Secreto by Lazasso, used here under the Arte Libre license, and Good Girl by Melanie Kurt, used here with permission. Thank you very much for listening, and be safe out there. Of course, you could always be safe in here, because, well, it's just me. Anyway, this is Toby Jenkins signing out.